The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he might be the greatest combination of a visual artist and poet that the English-speaking world has ever seen. William Blake was his name. People know it today, but they didn't know it in his lifetime when he was barely recognized and virtually never rewarded. Far from being lauded and lavished, he toiled in obscurity and was buried in a pauper's grave. And yet today, he is one of a handful of poets from the late 17 and early 1800s whom we still read, whom we still admire, and who still has the power to shock us out of our stupor. Blake had a secret. He saw things, visions. He was like no other person walking the planet. Well, we're all individuals, aren't we? Singular, unique. But Blake was one of the individualists. John Higgs, author of William Blake vs. the World, joins us today to help us see Blake and to hopefully afford us at least a fleeting glimpse of what Blake himself saw as plain as day. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you've recovered from Goblin Market at least a bit. My goodness, that one took a lot out of me, but in a good way. Kind of like a long, hard swim in choppy water. Well, not that dangerous. I was sitting in my chair for most of it. My mind was at risk, though. Maybe a long, hard swim in a controlled body of water. A placid ocean. Placid, but mysterious. Speaking of which, we have a mysterious person here today. Not our guest, John Higgs, but the subject, I mean, William Blake. We've discussed him before on the History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast, by the way. I'm glad you're here on this journey with us. We've discussed William Blake before, but that was just me talking about whatever. The tiger, probably. I don't even remember Blake's life. This guy, John Higgs, is here to really deliver the goods. His book is wonderful. Blake is worth spending some more time with. There are delights on every page of John Higgs's book, History Needs More Odd People, and we need to celebrate odd people more often. Visionaries and quirky geniuses and holy fools, we need more of them around. Prince, did anyone hear, did anyone ever hear things the way that Prince heard things? I'm not so sure. Luckily, he was talented enough that he could convey what he heard to us so we could hear new things too. Blake did that with his paintings, with his poems, and with his statements and conduct, with his life as well as his art. So let's get straight to it. A quick break and then John Higgs. Did I tell you enough about Blake to get us started here? Romantic poet, born in 17... whatever, 1757, I-I-R-C, could look it up, but I'm pretty sure that's right, 1757, and died in 1727. Did, wait, <laughs> sorry, did I just say 1727? 1827, of course. He was not uh, minus 30 when he died. He was a visionary, but he wasn't, 
Stephen Hawking moving backwards through time. He, he was, in fact, almost 70, 69 when he died. The author of the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and other works. And he was also a great painter and printmaker. He himself called his works prophetic. It's an unusual description to give to your writings. For most poets, that takes you into the realm of religion, those visionaries who found a religion, for example. Who else gets that label in literature? Who do we call a prophet? Writing prophetic prose outside of the holy books, of course. George Orwell, Philip K. Dick, John Milton. Well, we're veering back into the religious again. Not many people. Blake might be the best. Northrop Fry thought he was the least appreciated, pound for pound, or maybe I should say poem for poem. So let's dive into the world of William Blake. A quick break, and then John Higgs. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is John Higgs, author of a number of books, including I Have America Surrounded, The Future Starts Here, and William Blake Now. He's here today to talk about his new book, William Blake Versus the World. John Higgs, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, Jack. Good to talk to you. So I thought we might start with a quote about your book from Terry Gilliam, and I feel like I have to explain who Terry Gilliam is, unfortunately, because I have, I have a lot of younger listeners. That's not unfortunate, but I'm worried that they might not be familiar with the name. So he was the American in Monty Python, and he did the animations in between the segments. He was the director of Brazil and Time Bandits. And I I was drawn to this because he himself is such a, a visual artist and also has a verbal component to him. And he's a, a visionary and iconoclast. And he said about your book, quote, Absolutely wonderful. This book managed to make Blake's mind and mythology understandable to me at last. For that, I am truly grateful. End quote. 
And first of all, let's start with this. What is it about Blake's mind and mythology that make him so appealing, even here we are a couple centuries after Blake? Well, it's so unique, really. There isn't anyone else who thinks the way he does, who sees the world in the way he does, but also has that same um, skill set. I mean, the fact that he's as famous as a writer and a poet as he is as an artist and an engraver, it's unheard of. There's just no one else like that. There's no one else who's an absolute master uh, and recognized in the canon in two completely different, you know, art forms. And it's almost like the, the creative urge is deeper. Uh, you know, it can come out in all these sort of different ways, but the, the spark behind it all yeah. uh, lies a lot deeper than any other sort of poet or or, or writer. So, of course, we're intrigued by him. Yeah. He's such an enigma. There's no one else like him. And then the other thing that jumps out at me from the Terry Gilliam quote is that, understandable to me at last, I think Terry Gilliam yeah. is probably in his 70s. He's been waiting a long time for your book. <laughs> what, <laughs> I mean, is, that... <laughs> what is it that makes Blake so difficult to understand? That was that was pretty much the reason I was um, I wanted to write the book is because mm. I I just there was there been a huge um, retrospective exhibition at Tate Britain here in London and it had about three hundred of Blake's works and it was just a massive cultural event it was a huge success I think they sold about a quarter of a million tickets yeah. uh, and it was it was overwhelming it was just room after room of all these extraordinary sort of visionary artworks wow. um, I think people came out of it still feeling no closer to understanding him or yeah. what he was trying to tell us or where, where all this sort of stuff was was coming from. We came out thinking there's something extraordinary going on here. And for my mind, Blake is like this like extraordinary like gothic castle that you sort of encounter and you know that inside there's just like wonders and treasures and and but you don't know how to get in there or even if you're allowed in there or whether the gatekeeper's trying to sort of keep you out or, or something like that. The, I think the, the book was written to give a way in. I mean, I think that's what we really sort of needed was just a, a modern hand holding sort of leading into the mind of Blake. And so when, you know, when someone like Terry Gilliam responds in exactly that way, you know, you can imagine how, del- how delighted I was when we started doing the book. Yeah, uh, the publisher goes, oh, who would you want to try and get a a, a cover quote? And just Terry Gilliam spotted, sparked into my mind as just this this image of someone who was, you know, a mad visionary genius, but he's approachable. He made time bandits, for God's sake, you know. And that's how I wanted to sort of, you know, associate Blake in our minds as someone who is approachable, despite all the, the you know, the wondrous uh, strength of their imagination. Yeah, well, that's the other thing that interested me about this. I, I feel like when I, I read his writings and and see his works, I get the impression that Blake must have been a, an angry street prophet or some kind of madman who was constantly being misunderstood and who railed against the world and couldn't get along with anyone. But that sounds like I had a misconception. Well, not not exactly. I mean, that's certainly. Um an accurate and valid part of how Blake came across. A lot of depends what sort of, what part of his life you got him at. I mean, I, I make a point of opening the book with him uh, towards the end of his life, going to a dinner party where uh, he meets this man who becomes his friend, Henry, Henry Crabb Robinson, who, who writes in his diaries, the, his accounts of conversations with Blake. And we have a lot of recollections of Blake from people who were there or around at the time. And they all seem to be 
talking about just this this saint, this sort of lovely, sort of wise um, person who's at peace with himself, with sparkling eyes, who just loves music and he loves children and he loves joy, uh, whose who's, you know, presence was just um, uh, just a delight. And that's, that's yeah. how he comes across in these later descriptions of him. And then if you go back to read, especially the, the sort of the longer epic poems from the early 19th century, you know, that's not the image you get of him at all. You yeah. just get this angry, fiery prophet who just wants to tear down the sort of establishment. <laughs> and you imagine if you just walked past his house on the wrong road, you'd hear him shouting and sort of screaming. So both these these sides were in him. But the sort of the the sort of the angry, hectoring, um, wild sort of pro- prophet. It's definitely a particular part of his life when he was very much ignored uh, and mocked and dismissed by the art establishment in general and by society in, in general. And he was always, you know, getting into arguments and fights with people for reasons they didn't understand in any way, shape or form. And his mental health wasn't the best at this point was that there was a definite sort of paranoid edge to him during this sort of period, but that wasn't his, his, his old life at all, you know? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I will be interested to hear about the shift, but before we do that, let's talk about him in his earlier years. Where did that passion come from? I mean, he seemed to always be fully formed as William Blake, even from the, the youngest times. We have some very early uh, you know, poems written when he was 12 or early accounts when he was um, at art school and um, of him. And it, it, it's there's no sense... Like you say, with someone like David Bowie, there's a history of them developing as an artist and trying things until they finally find, you know, what we remember them as. It took David Bowie a while to become David Bowie. Uh, you don't get that with Blake at all. Um, he was always there. And it, a lot of it comes down to the visionary nature of him, the sense that he saw visions and he saw visions throughout his life from childhood to yeah. to the very end days. And so he sort of... He knew the importance of this and he knew how he needed to sort of express it and uh, and and try and convince people who didn't have such experiences themselves that this was a real and valid aspect, you know, of of the world. So that's always been there. There are accounts of him in moving in very radical circles. There was the publisher, Joseph Johnson, and he had these um, famous dinners with people like Tom Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft and the real radical thinkers of the day. And people would sort of come to debate and uh, discuss and try and work out, you know, how the world was and what the world should be and things like that. Blake, although he went occasionally, he didn't really fit into that because he just knew. He just yeah. knew how things were. <laughs> he didn't need to be, you know, uh, convinced of anything. You know, you couldn't convince him of anything anyway. <laughs> that was, he, yeah. he was very much an unshifting thing. Yeah, he was, he was very much Blake from day one. Yeah, so they were there to argue logically and to make different points. And for him, he almost couldn't participate in that because he had such self-conviction that his own beliefs were the correct ones. Yes, and he could um, at times... It's almost like he expected everyone else to know this, and he would be a little bit exasperated that, that that people couldn't see what he could see. Yeah. Well, let's say that I were to pass away and travel into the afterlife and then come back to Earth, I would probably be pretty frustrated with people who were speculating on what the nature of heaven was like. Yeah, I mean, there's that, that, uh, <laughs> that old saying, uh, in the land of the blind, 
the one-eyed man is king. Yeah, yeah, and I think right. the thing you get the thing you get from Blake is it's just nonsense. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is mocked and dismissed and ignored and and you know shunned. That's yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> that the, you know, someone with a, a larger uh, understanding, a larger vision. It doesn't tend to end well for them. I'm slightly, I'm slightly being um, attacked by my cat. If you can hear any mewling oh. or anything like that, I, I, I do apologise. Um, I don't know what the problem with the cat is. I think he's all right now. So I po- apologise for any little shouts you might hear. Oh, I heard a little shout there. Well, I, I don't know if you believe in reincarnation, but I would not put it past William Blake to be revisiting us and uh, participating in our conversation here. Sure, I mean his his understanding of eternity is such a, a large and, uh, I mean, it's too big a subject to go go into here, but there's the sense that from one perspective, he is always with us. Yeah. It does fit quite nicely. It was maybe a, a negotiation where he uh, he put in his bid to be to come back as a tiger, and he got partially what he wanted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So. Well, I think a lot of this, what we're talking about, is coming from these visions and and the meetings that he had with different figures. So let's take a quick break and then come back and talk about Blake's visions, what exactly they were, and, and if they were real or at least real to him, and how they affected his life and art. Okay, we're back with John Higgs. John, tell us about Blake's visions. What exactly were they? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, is it? That's that's the big issue that you really need to um, dive into and get your head around when you're dealing with Blake. It's often sort of explained away in accounts or just labeled. He, he saw visions and it's a, it's a name for it. So we but what was going on in his mind is the really fascinating question. And it's, it was very noticeable that in the 1960s, Blake became a very big deal in the, you know, the, the counterculture, the psychedelic counterculture. And that came to things like Allen Ginsberg and uh, Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception, which influenced the band The Doors. And uh, he, he was a figure who had this uh, real anti-authoritarian sort of radical edge. There was a lot of sexual liberation. There was the importance of the imagination. And um, for the people in the 1960s, this made a lot of sense. And it was very common for them just to think, oh, and his visions, they also make sense. Uh, he He was clearly on drugs. He was on psychedelic mushrooms because that's what would be around in in southern England at that time. Uh, And that really doesn't seem to be the case at all. We know this because, um, you know, as I say earlier, he had these visions from when he was very young to the the end of his days. And and there was no tradition of people taking things like psychedelic mushrooms uh, for what we now think of as positive mind expansion sort of uh, reasons. There was no sort of framing of that. If anyone did eat any of these mushrooms the accounts are of just horror and of of being fearing that they'd gone mad or feeling that possessed by demons or something like that it was natural 
what was happening in his brain chemistry. But it is very similar to what happens to people who are taking psychedelics. Uh, and, and so we're sort of at a stage now that when there's a lot of neuroscience being done into issues like that. And when you look at that, it can be helpful to sort of get a grasp of what was going on in, in Blake's mind which is something I try and go to go into in, in the book. It's quite a big sort of a big sort of subject. But he saw these visions throughout his entire life. He knew that other people didn't see them. He, he, yeah. you know, but that didn't mean that they weren't a type of real. They didn't they weren't just like meaningless hallucinations or just quirks of the brain that, you know, were were a nothing, you know, even though it was just the way his mind saw it was still real and valid and important part of the world of the of the cosmos and it all boiled down to um the imagination and the strength of the imagination and the ability of the imagination to create the world we live in and change the world we live in and he always saw imagination as uh, as as a muscle uh, that anyone could exercise and and visions as, as something that anyone could experience it was he hadn't didn't have that sort of um uh, that sense of being oh i'm special because you know i'm having visions you know i'm a great prophet or anything like that it was always you should all be seeing this as well you know and you could be sort of you could be sort of seeing the world in, in these sort of ways yeah well that does sound like the 60s and it sounds like yes. they would be you know i think they're the way I understood their view of it, I hadn't heard that they thought that Blake might actually be ingesting some substance as well, but I sort of always viewed it as they would say, well, this is, reality here is that there are multiple realities or that there are multiple forms of perception or you can see multiple things. We're getting there through the assistance of LSD, for example. William Blake was somebody who could get there on his own. Yeah, very, very much yeah. so. And he saw all of theology really all of all yeah. of gods and devils and Angels heavens and, yeah. and, and uh, you know hell and all these things but he saw them all as internal states they were real and vivid and powerful but he saw them all as something that was within us uh and the example i i I like to use about this because it kind of makes him relevant in what is, you know, in a fairly secular 21st century world. Uh, whereas people now, generally speaking, don't say, I don't, don't really believe in hell. They don't believe that hell is a physical place located somewhere that they could possibly be sent to. It's not a thing a lot of people believe now. But we all know someone who's been living in hell. And we all deep down realize that to deny that or to belittle it in some way would be wrong. You know, it's very, mm. very real what they're sort of going through. And once you see something like hell as an internal state, suddenly the idea of, you know, paradise of heaven as an internal state becomes plausible, because it becomes almost real. And this is an idea that's almost entirely missing in, you know, 21st century culture. The idea that, you know, paradise is, is something that could be here and now, and it's not, you know, far off and beyond or, you know, something for the next life if you've been good or, 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 or whatever. So the work of Blake does have this numinous quality, but it's, it's, it brings that quality to the here and now. So even though he's, you know, writing in the 18th century in a, a long gone world that seems very strange and hard to uh, get our heads around. 
that it's all about how we perceive the world. It's almost like the the our soul, for want of a better word, is not so much different from our, our view of the world. It's like the uh, as a man is, so he sees, as, as as Blake would say. It's 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 something internal that we sort of project out. Um, these are these are really extraordinary ideas to sort of spend time with thinking about um and you know i think that doesn't change and that's why blake remains so sort of worth engaging with because it does improve your quality of life to see the world in these terms um and time spent you know understanding blake and getting to know his worldview and, and how he saw things is always always time well spent and people people who get into blake do report having a better quality of life afterwards mm. you know it should should be prescribed i think by, by the medical <laughs> authorities for a lot of people well let me ask you how i guess my question is how visual it was i sort of have one conception of of a possibility here of let's say a man sitting on a hill and looking out at a valley and instead of just seeing grass and trees and houses and cows and farmers walking around, he instead sees angels and stars and rainbows and all kinds of different elements that are invisible to other people. Yeah. And then another form of vision I'm imagining would be more like you look at anything, anywhere, uh, you could be sitting in your room, in your study, or or whatever. But what you see is that the objects are alive with spirit, and they're connected to the cosmos in a way that you yourself are as well. And your soul is part of your body, but it's also connected with this larger spiritual force. And sort of like a more like a this is how the cosmos actually works mm. kind of vision. Did he have one or the other of those, or both, or neither? Or? I mean, I think both sound. Fairly, probably the first one most, yeah, um, yeah, uh, most commonly. There was a a letter he wrote to his friend Thomas Butts in I think about 1803 when he was living on the south coast of England in a place called Felpham, and he'd gone for a walk across the South Downs of England, and he'd got into an argument with this thistle, and he write, he writes this letter about how he'd got into an argument with this thistle, and he writes it in, in, in <laughs> it becomes a poem. And the poem becomes this extraordinary insight into the nature of imagination and perception. Um, and it's one of my favorite Blakeian things because it's so absurd. It's so absurd to have this argument with this thistle. But he knew he, he knew it was just a thistle. But in his imagination, it was also this hectoring old man who was giving him a, a load of grief about various life choices that, that he'd made. And, and his mind was wrestling with the, the the issues at stake and projecting them out into the world and projecting them onto this poor thistle. And for him, uh, perception was uh, um, a dance between the imagination and what was really out there. And the notion that we just, we perceive the world as it is, uh, yeah. which is, uh, I, I think it's called uh, naive realism. That's the, the philosophical stance that the, the world is as we perceive it. And it's been, you know, it's been refuted for thousands of years by people, you know, um, from the Buddha onwards, really. But it's so com- convincing that we yeah. we believe that the world, as, as we look out at the, the place we're in and, and the things around us, we go, well, that's just the world. The notion that things like, I don't know, color and sound don't exist in the world they're just creations of our minds it's just 
it's it's hard to accept because they're so convincing because right. the world as we see it is so convincing but blake absolutely grasped the sense that um it was a dance between his imagination and, and the world uh, and it always was whether you whether you thought that or not uh, and that did that didn't um uh dis- diminish it in any way you know, in a, from our scientifically materialistic sort of mind view, we'd go, "Oh, that's that's bad. We're not perceiving it correctly." But no, for Blake, that was exactly how how things should be. And so he he knew, as I say, that a thistle was just a thistle. But he also knew that his perception of a thistle was, uh, you know, it was part him, part of the universe. Did did he see the world this way constantly, or were the visions something that? They would visit him, so to speak. Uh, he would say he saw the world in what he called twofold vision, which was, uh, which is the dance of the imagination and the real, uh, yeah. constantly. That was that was his normal way of seeing the world. But there were <laughs> more sort of um, elevated uh, visionary states that would sometimes come over him from that point on, um, which he talks about in, in that exact same letter, actually about about the thistle. Um, he was he was granted what we would now consider a. a, 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 a experience of grace from exercising his imagination and using his imagination on this little he did then receive a, a, a spiritual experience mm. now your book is william blake versus the world we've talked a little bit about him being misunderstood especially when he was younger and kind of fulminating against that but what did you have in mind by the world that blake is against here yeah i mean that's a, 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 a classic sort of image of blake is this sort of failure really um mm. you know he was he was penniless um when he died he was buried in a pauper's graveyard he'd only had one exhibition of his own work um in his lifetime of just a solo exhibition and it was like a bro- above his brother's shop and it didn't sell any work and there was one review which called him an unfortunate lunatic he he was uh, rich in every way that matters, except financially. You know, he had this real strong bond with his wife. And when I was talking about how he was perceived in his older days as this man who was at peace with himself, that was very much. But from a material sort of career minded sort of thing, he looked an absolute failure. It looked like the world had just chewed him up and spat him out. And, and it was and the world defeated him. But the story of the the world versus William Blake isn't as interesting as the story of William Blake versus the world, what William Blake was trying to do, because he was he was working on an entirely different territory than this. Um, and on that level, on the level of what he was trying to achieve, he was a success beyond measure, you know. Uh, and and the, the, the fact that his um, his fame has grown and grown and grown over the, the, the past 200 years uh, is something that he entirely predicted. He was he was he was convinced that in in eternity he was sort of famous, you know, beyond recognition, beyond measure, and, and all these things. And he has become. And you know, the the um, the, the leading artists of the time uh, who were becoming incredibly wealthy, incredibly well respected, incredibly famous, we've just forgotten them. You know, they 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 mean nothing to us now. Yeah, their, their, right. work, their work is is you know, it's a historical curiosity at best, but they're. The, the, the notion in you know the mid 1790s that the artist we'd be talking about then was William Blake would have just got a, a mainly a who from most of the art establishment, but a, a guffaw from those that knew him. You know, it's just so so unlikely. 
Yeah. Um, but do, do you, when you say that he was uh, working on the world and his, sort of his plan for the world and his project, do you mean he was, he wanted to shape the physical world to his imagination? Or do you mean his, his art and his, his poetry would have an effect on human beings and in posterity, he would be recognized as great? I think he would have seen both as the same thing. I don't think mm, he would have right. see, seen a, <laughs> uh, a, a division there. The, the notion that we transform uh, the world through the hard work of uh, mental struggle and mental uh, mm. strife is embedded deeply in his work. And when he, you know, in, in his, his great epic poem, Jerusalem, he talks of London dirty old London uh, becoming this golden um, eternal city, uh, Jerusalem. And he doesn't mean that, you know, someone sort of will come along and change the paving stones for golden ones or put up golden pillars down Kentish town or things like that. He, it's absolutely a, a spiritual uh, conversion. It's, 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 um, it's done through the power of the imagination and it is um, through for him. Imagination was the divine quality of the universe it was the the thing that came out of nothing uh, uh that was transformative uh for him i mean he, he viewed himself as a, a a christian as if he described himself as a christian but for him the the idea of jesus was the imagination and that was what makes this world more than just the sort of finite limited material meaningless collection of atoms that it's sometimes described as the, the human imagination was the divine aspect of the of the universe uh, and so that's what he's working and he was a real grafter he was a real hard worker he was uh, he was working class he didn't go to school he did most of his work was engraving i mean it's so it's a lot of metal and yeah. iron and ink right. and physical labor <laughs> long through the night you know it's not um it's not the romantic idea of you know the uh uh lying on a couch with a quill yeah. and, the, and the, <laughs> the muses come through you to sort of give you the poem or anything like that no this is this right. is a real sort of noisy metallic industrial age uh strife to, to sort of create this work oh, and yet it's got that almost a savage beauty to it yeah it has hasn't it i mean it's it's pretty melodramatic a lot of his stuff it's it's quite extra extraordinary and you can see why it sort of comes up in things like um you know horror films like red dragon the hannibal Lecter film that uses imagery and, and in video games you get it a lot and sort of comics and graffiti and it sort of comes up through through the cracks in the pavement all almost when I mean, we people hear of blake not from the usual way of it's not it's not handed down by the establishment you know you're not sort of given it at school it just comes to you some other way you know it, it creeps up on yeah. it's it's uh it's it's definitely a, a, a much more of a living a vibrant body of work than his peers or contemporaries at the time i think yeah you can imagine a lot of people like terry gilliam being out there thinking I must be different. No one, I, I, no one has ever been like me. I bet. I, I just yeah. am not. I'm marching to a different drummer. Nobody is doing what I'm doing. And then they find Blake, and they're like, "No, he, this is the guy. He was there. He, <laughs> he saw things too." <laughs> Absolutely. And so many of uh, Terry Gilliam's films are about the world being transformed by the imagination. 
and that person being you know mocked or dismissed as mad and i'm thinking particularly the fisher king is a good example but it comes yeah. up in so many of his of his films mm. that it's it makes total sense that he, his last yeah. his last film was the don quixote don quixote yeah right, it, it's right. it's that it's that um and uh, munchausen was like that exactly yeah exactly he comes to it again and again and again and it's always um i i, I think with Terry Gilliam's films, which is probably why he's not so successful and, and lauded uh, and, you know, given budgets that he wants to do things with in Hollywood, they're not sort of, here's the hero and they're transformed by the imagination and then everything's fine. Mm. Uh, um, a nice sort of neat structure like that. The imagination keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And it's it's constant sort of transformative sort of thing. That, <laughs> uh, just it starts off mad and gets madder and madder and madder sort of thing, which is... Um, uh, may not be the perfect Hollywood story structure, but certainly if you view the world like Blake, it's the truth. You know, it's how things are. Yeah. Now, we often lump Blake in with romantics kind of because of yeah. time period, I think, and some common themes. But I don't really associate uh, any of this with Wordsworth and Coleridge and Byron and Shelley and Keats. But did they recognize Blake as being a... Uh, someone to reckon with or yeah. did it happen later he was a little bit ahead of them mm -hmm. coleridge met him coleridge, oh right um, i guess that'd be the guy <laughs> it would be wouldn't it and, and again the, the again the point of the imagination it's it's, it's very much but i think they had a mutual friend charles tulk uh, who lent courage this because no one knew of Blake, you know, um, yeah. people like Shelley or, or Keats or something. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have heard of Blake. He was, he was, he was a nobody. So it's quite interesting that courage did. He recognized that this guy was a genius, quite a wild genius. He had another mutual friend who was trying to get Blake to meet Wordsworth, which never came off, but my God, that would have been <laughs> class. Yeah. That right. Would have been interesting. I think the difference, um, but I mean, it does make sense to, to lump Blake in with the romantics, generally speaking, in terms of that movement of recognizing something irrational, something nature based, something away from the age of enlightenment and, and the, um, the industrial revolution as something profoundly human, that romantic sort of spirit. That does all make sense. But I mean, this, what I was talking about earlier about him getting into this fight with the thistle, it's very different from Wordsworth seeing the, the um, daffodils. Yeah, you know, which right. is, is, is that, that, that great romantic sort of image of being overcome with the beauty of the daffodils. He doesn't he doesn't get in a fight with them. <laughs> you know, it's, it is very different. It, it, Blake did see, I mean, he called nature the devil. Nature was the world without the human imagination transforming it. So it was the it was spiritually uh, devoid as he saw it. So that's not. Uh, a position that most of the other romantics would have agreed with, the notion that nature was the devil. Right. And the whole, I mean, emotion recollected in tranquility of Wordsworth, it, Blake mm -hmm. would probably say, no, this is this is just reality that's on fire. Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I mean, his um, Blake's work, he, I mean, he created this... this whole new mythology of characters mm. um, yeah. entirely from his own mind most artists at the time would use you know the, the greek mythology or uh, biblical stories so the shared myths everything that people would recognize and, and understand for blake they portrayed a world that wasn't quite right so he sort of created his own uh, and all the different characters wrecked represented different aspects of, of the human mind um, in a way that prefigures 
psychology i mean this was a century before freud or Jung or or anything like that there wasn't the field of psychology then to understand the the clashing energies of different aspects of the of the mind so it was all expressed through through art and he never really bothered to explain who these characters were or, mm. or what they were like or how they all sort of fitted together it's almost like he just assumed that oh well people will know because they're part of them you know it's part of you so so you must recognize it you know and if he'd right. made more of an effort to explain this mythology to people it may have been picked up on and used by other people more and you know and made more sense you know with the the rest of the romantic movement as it went forward but he he, he just didn't <laughs> he didn't explain yeah. himself but, and if he to... if he had done that he wouldn't be blake in a way yeah too. i mean true, it's, true. you'd maybe get more of a feeling that he was kind of a, possibly a con man or you know just a more of a uh here's something i'm gonna try to put across as if it's true or i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna wink and present it to you rather than yeah. just here it is. This is what I. This is what I have. This is what I see. Absolutely, as he saw the work was everything. He just did the work, and then did the next work, and then did the next. And there was he was never. Um, he could easily have tried to set himself up as I don't know a, a, a guru or a prophet or a sort of a, a, a great visionary spiritual sort of leader. And he would never do that. He would never sort of put himself on a pedestal, as he saw it. The imagination, as I say, was Jesus and Jesus was there for everyone and everyone should be able to see things like that. And, you know, uh, it was just what humans were to yeah. see things that way. It was just normal humanity. Uh, humanity is best, admittedly, but nothing's precious or, or unique or special, you know. Yeah. Do you think that the example of Blake helps us understand the unusual figures the artists and the thinkers and the terry gilliams and the david bowies of the world or do you think there's something in blake that helps us understand something that's within all of us uh, very much so absolutely i mean yeah. when, when the book came out here in england i wrote uh, an article for a music website called the quietus uh, comparing blake with prince mm. and it was i was, sli- it was slightly tongue-in-cheek at least when i started it because there's a lot of similarities. I mean, Prince, he saw vision. He, I mean, he said uh, an angel, he saw this angel who cured him of his epilepsy as a child. But he also had a number of things, very, uh, a number of aspects of his personality were so Blakeian. One was an inability to sort of differentiate between sexuality and religion. They're all yeah. part of the same thing. You know, ecstasy was ecstasy. It didn't matter how, how it sort of, how it sort of came. And also this, this, this need to just work, just to keep working. Like he had um, at Paisley Park, right. he would have an engineer on 24 hours just in case he wanted to go into the studio and make something. And he would, he'd get up at night, he'd get in the studio and he'd make something and he'd take it and he'd just put it in his vault. And then he'd make the next thing and just put it in his vault. And we still haven't heard half of what he was doing because he wasn't doing it for his fans for his record company for he was it was between you know him and the, the eternity it was that was the creating of it yeah was the whole thing the creating of it was the whole point and so you look at you look at someone like prince and you look at blake and you see real strong connections between what was driving them and how they sort of saw the world so it starts to get a bit more universal when it's not just one person like that right it starts to become an aspect of the sort of 
creative process as different people experience it. Yeah, ah, it's a great example. Uh, okay, well, let me ask one more question. Mm. What do today's neuroscientists and psychologists think was going on in Blake's mind? Do they have any theories or anything that wouldn't have been available to, to Blake's contemporaries that we sort of view how we view the human mind today? I think so. I mean, they're not specifically speaking about Blake, but there is a, a, a lot of crossover. I mean, I talk a lot in the book about an aspect of how our minds wired up, which is called the default mode network, which is mm. how our brains are when we're uh, at rest and we're not actively sort of working on, on a task. Um, and it's kind of counterintuitive in that it's, you'd think that our brains would just settle into quiet when nothing was happening. But this default mode network uh, sort of strikes up. And it's it, in many ways, it forms the sense of ourselves as a story. It has a mm. sense of our, our memories, our autobiographical memories, our, our past, which tell us, you know, who we are and what we sort of, uh, how we behave and what type of person we are. And it sort of, it sort of builds this, these aspects of our, our, our mind sort of form into this sort of narrative over time, which we see as our, our self. But there are times when it goes quiet, when it's all, and it all goes. And at that point, you don't really have uh, a sense of the past. Uh, and in, in the past, there's all your sort of, you know, your, your regrets, your, your, your hurt, your um, your embarrassment, and all those aspects of, of ourselves, and it doesn't have the aspect of our vision of the future, which is a thing we worry about and what we fear. When I mean, the mind just focuses on the the present moment, and the past falls away, and the future doesn't exist, and there's only the now, and that's when our brain sees the world just like that. That's when everything seems to be perfect. That's when everything just seems to. That's when the world glows. That's when when we get to that state whether that's through creative work or artistic work or even through sport or something where you get in that sort of flow state when mm. it's just just the moment uh, and that moment is timeless that that timeless moment that blake keeps talking about again and again in, in his work we do have a sense now of what is happening in the brain when that sort of that sort of moment happens you can get it through meditation and, and you know there's a whole a whole bunch of different ways and there there's a lot of work exploring these sort of spiritual sort of states and we find when you look into it that blake's explanation of it being something triggered through creative work does make a lot of sense it does seem extremely extremely plausible so all that i think is really useful and, and really worth looking into yeah yeah so something we all might be able to access now and then, and someone like Prince was accessing it a lot. Someone like yeah. Blake was was almost there all the time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it, and even if you just occasionally just get a glimpse of it, right? Yeah, it's enough right. because you know it's a real thing. Then you know, and as as I say, our culture just doesn't have this in it. This 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 sense of uh, timeless, numinous sort of. Um, moments where everything is is right and everything is uh, is is perfect uh and all you have to do is just just be uh, and once you know that that's a real thing once you have that as part of your life oh it makes such a difference it really does 
Right. Okay. Well, I will try to get there by reading William Blake and by reading <laughs> your book, which is called William Blake versus the World. John Higgs, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to John Higgs for joining us today. You can find his book at bookstores everywhere. William Blake versus the world. It is a great read. And my thanks to you, dear listeners. Please do come back for more if you'd like. I don't <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking you like that. How about this? I'll tell you what you're going to get in the next few weeks and you can decide for yourselves. June Jordan is on our calendar, another forgotten woman of literature. I think that's number seven in our series. And we will include her look at Walt Whitman. We are still in the middle of our Walt Whitman. I guess we'll call it a Walt Whitman month. I don't know where that's going to end up. Five or six episodes, probably. And we've got more Christina Rossetti lined up for us. And ah, here we go. Carlos Agende is going to be here to talk about Alzac. And you will be inspired to go read Balzac after that. And to read Carlos Agende's book, too. And you writers won't want to miss that one. We talk some craft, and Carlos has some ideas for how to make narratives work. Some insight into how to get readers to follow your characters when they are bad. When they're flawed, maybe even horrible people. There's a trick. And Carlos has it. And he shares it with us. We're going to head to the movies. That's on July 4th, I think. And we're going to head to Roanoke Island for some storytelling women and some lost colonists. And we're going to head out west for some Wallace Stegner, the dean of America's Western writers and complicated story these days. For now, we are headed toward the end of our time together, at least for now. And so I will humbly and graciously say, for the 400th plus time, like all humble and gracious comments, it must be said over and over and over again like a madman. But a humble and gracious madman, perhaps, hopefully. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.